0: This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In podcast network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com.
1: Hello and welcome to episode sixteen of the Asian Cinema Film Club, your monthly dose of Asian film goodness. I'm your host, as always, Elwood Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host and partner in crime, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello. I always pause on the uh, on the setting. In my head, it's always still going. It's still like I keep in the edge to call you lever, but it's not.
0: Yeah, you've always, you always, you always, always want me to be a, a famous uh, novelist, don't you? a famous author!
1: a middle of the road author who, film his best book got turned into a Jackie Chan movie. I've still yet to watch.
0: Yeah, that's the one. I've actually seen that as well. It's all right.
1: <laughs> there's a great. There's, there you the go. That's all reviews.
0: That's the review. And thank you for thank you for having me this week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. Tonight, we are going to be looking at a Hong Kong classic, uh, which is John Woods the Killer from 1989. Um, a film which optimistically is stated as the greatest Hong Kong movie ever made, but due to a according to a hot dog review on the front of the DVD case. Uh, we will, of course, be finding out whether that's true or not later in the show. Tonight, I mean, obviously, we're talking about Hong Kong uh, cinema, and we're more importantly, we're talking about heroic bloodshed or heroic gunplay. Movies. I mean, is this a field that sort of one when you sort of gravitate towards, or are you sort of more sort of arty fair these days, Stephen?
0: I think you know the truth of that. <laughs> but, I mean, obviously, I've been on the podcast before and said, I really, John as a director, is a director I have a real blind spot for, other than Redcliffe. I really seen very little I've probably seen more of his USA work than I'd seen of his Hong Kong work, so so this was the first I'd seen The Killer, believe it or not, and have. Uh, but yeah, I, I I do I do gravitate towards the arty and the cult on the whole, except when I don't. But the sort of gun gunplay, yakuza, triad sort of crime stuff isn't really my thing. But you know. If it's popcorn, it's popcorn. It's fairly entertaining, I guess.
1: I mean, obviously, since the last show then, I mean, what has been holding your attention, if anything, really?
0: Well, you know, I usually say I've been, and I haven't watched anything. Yeah. Opposite is true. <laughs> so, this month I've been watching loads. So, um, to start with, I picked up the Bloodthirsty Trilogy sort of Japanese 1970s vampire films from um, Arrow Films, um, basically Toho put together some films inspired by or Hammer in the UK, so there's um, a film called The Vampire Doll, which is okay, The film called Lake of Dracula, which is really good, and there's another one called Eve Dracula, which isn't bad either, so it's sort of um, it's a bit too good, someone really rather good, sort of, almost British style horror films from the seventies, but with Japanese faces, it's they're kind of interesting I got asked to review a book about Amy Yip who was one of the um, stars of 1980s 1990s cat-free skin uh, in Hong Kong um, sort of famously for sex and zen and an erotic ghost story so I thought you know what I've I've reviewed this 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 book about her I'll go and try and watch one of these films. Mm. It's the sort of thing I haven't looked at. Um, I watched Erotic Ghost Story, and actually, I was really surprised. It was really well thought. um I wasn't expecting it to have a story and things like that. And there's one other film. I watched Japanese sort of courtroom drama-y thing called um, I Just Didn't Do It, which is um, it's sort of one of those sort of films that the Japanese just do really well, which is sort of... Sort of courtroom long-winded courtroom dramas um it's by a director called masayuki suo who's um he's done he's, he's still working now he's done quite a few famous films he, the most famous film he did was shall we dance which was remade into a uh al pacino film wasn't it but it's really good it's about a guy he's accused of basically groping a girl on a train and um, it's actually based on a true story of of how come Japanese law enforcement has a 99% conviction rate, i.e. it's all completely fixed and people are forced to admit to crimes they didn't commit. So, yeah, they were what I watched. Mostly Japanese with a hint of free Hong Kong.
1: Oh, very nice. Um, I mean, I've had a slightly more limited schedule to watch any film because I've obviously been away with E3. You can obviously check out my coverage with my, obviously my co-host Kim over on GameWarp at uh, ThatMomentIn.com. Now, certainly I've got a few things uh, sort of stacked up, because today being Father's Day, uh, my kids bought me The Handmaiden, which I'm really looking forward to finally getting around to watching. Also, on Crunchyroll, they just uh, released the anime of uh, She Said no Joe, um, which has been renamed Megalobox. Uh, which is kind of like real steel um, in th- these boxers have like power suits to box with. And I mean, this manga is manga's really, really old. I mean, this is the 50th anniversary. It's this uh, anime is being made of it to uh, sort of celebrate, uh, celebrate the manga. But certainly that's uh, been that's high on my list. Uh, now I've actually got some <laughs> time to watch things again, which is really quite nice. Um, something I have obviously been dipping in and out of it, and that's on Netflix. There's a surprisingly large amount of Hong Kong programming that seems to be floating across, and I have to wonder who has been asking for this Hong Kong programming?
0: I don't know. I know there's an awful lot of Koreans that I noticed some Taiwanese that have turned up there in the last year. Um, I don't know, because Netflix is region-specific, isn't it? Who I in mean, the UK is asking for this?
1: I know. this is. I mean, this is really bizarre, because if you follow our Facebook or our Twitter, you will know that um, I've been on there and I've had a little bit of a rant about the distribution for Godzilla. Now, as any UK fan will tell you, there has been very limited releases for Godzilla here in the UK compared to the States where you can get them all on lovely Region 1 discs. And I obviously, you know, hypothesize that perhaps it's due to the snark casters, you know, using Godzilla movies as easy fare rather than treating them with respect and the cultural importance that they obviously have. Um, now, we did actually get a response back from the, you know, the overlord of old things, Kaiju Noi Jogosis Rigone, who um, confirmed that it's more just a distribution issue and um, nothing to actually do with any sort of external factors. So, I have to wonder, why haven't we got any sort of distributors for Godzilla titles here in the UK? And yet, if I go on Netflix, there is a host of uh, programming and comedies and stand-up specials. I mean, I tried watching uh, one of the stand-up specials uh, that's on there. I think it's called Two Night Stand. And I don't know about you, Stephen, but I can't watch uh comedy, apparently, with um, subtitles. There's something that seems to get lost in the sub- subtitles. I mean, this is uh, Chuck Wan Chi's stand-up specials. And I watched about the first half an hour of it, and I- having a joke, being a joke in subtitles, I don't know something about it, it just seems to get lost in translation. I, can you watch stand-up I, I comedy?
0: I can't, because I've also, I've tried watching a couple of things, I haven't seen any Hong Kong stand-up, and I suspect it's dreadful actually, but um, <laughs> the, 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 I've seen some German and some Spanish stuff on there, and for me, stand-up comedy is purely about the delivery and and the style of, and, and, you know, we're obviously used to reading subtitles, but not in that kind of. I think I'd find it quite difficult myself to have a hunt though, because I hadn't noticed that. I'd noticed lots of dramas, a paucity of films, but that's Netflix all over these days. I haven't yes. noticed um, any, any, any stand up. Well, I mean, it's great
1: in one way, the fact that obviously there's this host of Asian sim that's on there, and it's not just the obvious, like, Shaw Brothers titles that are on there. Uh, I mean, they added the series Oct B, which is a uh, sort of gangster filler, which I was recommended uh, by Kim. And uh, I've just seen that Manhunt, John Woo's uh, film, is also on Netflix as well. That's one of their Netflix exclusives. So it's interesting the the titles that are obviously filtering across there. Um, So in one hand, it's great. The second hand it does always, as I said, it begs the question, is like why Netflix chooses to really push the Asian titles, yet there are other titles that are readily available on the American Netflix, um, such as things such as like Lucha Underground. We can't watch Lucha Underground here, but it's wildly available in the States Netflix, and it really often makes me question the business model Netflix works with, um, because it never seems to make any rhyme to be any sort of rhyme or reason to what they choose to include.
0: Well, when you consider that Chinese ethnicity makes up less than 1% of the British population, who's, who, uh, who's their audience? Um, because that's fairly out there. You know, the, casual, the casual watcher whom I... Uh, I don't know, a Stephen Chow or a Wu film, I suspect, but not watching something fairly skin-light entertainment-y, uh, that's, that's really for your hardcore expats, and that's got five people. I mean, that's just, I don't know, it's very strange.
1: It is. I don't know, maybe they're trying to cash in on those Crunchyroll dollars. That's it, if I can, I can think of Because obviously, like, we got Crunchyroll, we've got High Dive, uh, we've got all these sort of uh, anime platforms that come up that are very popular over here, and I just kind of help but wonder, is this their attempt to obviously tap into that market? Because obviously, Crunchyroll provides Asian drama. I believe Funimation does as well. So it, I, I can't help but wonder, wonder what the reason is behind this. I mean, uh, anyone who wants to obviously shed some light on this, please do. Uh, you can by the Facebook or Twitter. You can, if you want to, uh, you can either drop us an email. Um, the email address for ourselves is acfilmclub at yahoo.co.uk, um, would of course, I'd love to hear from you. And obviously, while you're there, make sure you uh, hit those like and subscribe buttons uh, while you're listening to us iTunes or Podomatic or Stitcher, wherever we happen to be leaving, because, uh, you know, we do appreciate uh, appreciate all those uh, likes, subscribes, and uh, certainly any feedback you wish to uh, to give us. But, yeah, I mean, on to tonight's selection. I mean, it's obviously myself, pick, myself who picked uh, tonight's film, The Killer from 1989, because for some reason we, I think in our attempts to not pick the most predictable titles, we seem to at the same time, have missed out on covering some of these sort of key titles, uh, such as Tonight's Selection, which is obviously The Killer from 1989, which I've always uh, said that it's almost like an unofficial trilogy of films this one falls in, uh, where if you're introducing yourself to John Woo, you want to watch uh, Better Tomorrow first, and then you watch The Killer, and then you watch Bold and that will be like your three pillars of uh, his Hong Kong work. And um, I recommend this to Stephen, who, of course, went off and watched Hardball first and didn't get it,
0: from what I recall. Yeah, oh, I found more fun in picking holes in it than um, actually enjoying it in the movie. So it's it's fair to say I didn't get it. So, uh,
1: yeah, <laughs> thanks for that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, obviously, John Woo, he's probably, as I say, he's one of the most recognizable directors of Hong Kong cinema. Um, certainly, his work has influenced people such as like Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino. And he's also one of the few Asian directors who's had massive success in his homeland and then come over and almost replicated it in the US. Um, he obviously had a string of films. I mean, he did Broken Arrow and Hard Target and Face Off and... Mission Impossible 2. Yes. And it was kind of, I don't know, some of them worked. Like, I mean, Hard Target and Broken Arrow and Face Off are all fantastic. And then he does stuff like Wind Talkers, which isn't fantastic in the slightest. And even, I mean, obviously, in terms of Hong Kong tracks, I mean, Johnny Toe has cited him regularly as being an influence on his own work. And certainly when we think of like the heroic bloodshed genre, it's Ringo Lam and John Woo are two of these sort of figureheads Of this sort of genre, and while there obviously was heroic bloodshed movies before, I mean, it was really when you look at his filmography is when um, *A Better Tomorrow* comes out, and this is uh, 1986 that we really sort of get this sort of set style of what these movies become. Um, Now, obviously, I know assuming you're not a huge fan of um, the sort of heroic bloodshed movies, but I mean, *The Killer* obviously is one of the sort of standout titles of this genre. So looking at, like, you know, high-ranking films of this genre, I mean, how did it work for you? Did it work any better than uh, the other films you've obviously seen?
0: I (laughs) I had to be diplomatic about this, because I know you love this film. Um, (laughs) There are a lot of good things about this movie, right? Up front and centre, it's Cherry Unfat, Yeah. Who has got more style and charisma and and he can play it with a wink and a twinkle in his eye that most Hong Kong actors can ever dream of, certainly sort of mainstream stuff. So I, I get his call, and I get his fun. Um, I think the film looks amazing, and a lot of that's down to Peter Powell, the cinematographer, who even the most casual Asian film fan will probably know as the cinematographer on Crouching Tiger, Head and Dragon. So he, anything he does normally is um, shined with a bit of class. However, it is the most late 80s and 90s sort of film I've seen in a long time, which isn't surprising because <laughs> that's when it was made. And everything every sort of cliche about a John Woo film is in there. And the reason they're cliches is they're true. And actually a lot of them all started here. So let's talk about the uh, Christian imagery. Let's talk about those bloody doves. Let's talk about the, a huge amount of slow-mo, which is in there. And all those things took me out of it. Okay. However, it however, it looked great. Um, you know Cheon fat i can watch him do pretty much anything and and you would if you go around his career i um, you know, he he doesn't settle in one kind of genre and also the sort of that final act with all, when all the bullets start flying and people start getting their mummy by suits shot up and bodies start flying around that's pretty bloody amazing so for the final act we'll say i did enjoy that even though as a whole, I do find it a bit of a stylistic paralysis going on there that I just can't, I just don't get it at all.
1: Okay. Um, The alternative opinion, though, is yours. (laughs) Okay. I mean, if you're not obviously familiar with the killer, I mean, this is is the, you know, powerhouse pairing of Cherry and Fat and John Woo, who, there's certain directors who just work better when they're with this particular actor, like Scorsese and De Niro, or more recently, Scorsese and DiCaprio. Um, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. And John Woo and Chang Yun-Fat are another of those powerhouses. For some reason, these two, whenever they're together, they're just just absolute dynamite working partnership that they have. And it's fortunate, really, because they've worked together on numerous films. And for some reason, they never worked together in in the States, which is surprising because Chang Yun-Fat was a sort of great breaking into the States around the same time that John Woo was. He was doing films such as, like, Replacement Killers um, and The Corruptor. And it never it surprised me the fact that John Woo never found a way to work him in uh, to his films, which, you know, I don't know what was going on there. Maybe they just wanted to, like, see if they could work well without the other. But this film is back to, was produced by uh, Sue Hawk and it basically came out of the fact that John Muir at the time was trying to make better tomorrow too but there was issues with the financing so in order to get something made he went and got backing through Cherry and Fat and Danny Lee's financing companies and he went in together with a completely rough draft which anyone who's up to speed on like their Hong Kong filmmaking techniques would know that that's not uncommon for them Mm -hmm. to start shooting without a script or just like a rough idea and you know somehow it it turns out all right in the end, and um, certainly when we talk of homage, to this film. He is, in particular, he's homage in June Pierre Millville, who directed the coolest hitman movie ever in *The Samurai*, and he's also paying homage to Scorsese. Um, and this, to, to, for myself, it really brings back uh, like Kurosawa, because Kurosawa was a big fan of John Ford, to the point that he wore sunglasses like John Ford did. Um, and in turn, Kurosawa's work inspired a whole generation of American directors, with just like Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas. So it's always interesting when we see how Japanese, um, Asian directors are influenced by Western directors, and how in turn they then influence more Western directors. So, um, I don't know if you know any other examples that those are just the two main ones.
0: Um, now you put me on the spot. I can't think. Of it. I mean, you can't. Right, I mean, himself has inspired Tarantino, Rodriguez, so that 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 group of people that, that 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 are allowing themselves to take impressions from not just from foreign cinema but from b and c grades as well <laughs> um so, so, so wu's you know i i get it, i get it i can get how influential he was and he's nothing like any of the, any of his contemporaries at the time um i mean the killer i had a look at the other films that were released in that year in hong kong and you know there's nothing there's a load of wong jing films <laughs> <laughs> One of his God of Gamblers, so Cherry on Fat is there as well. But, you know, there, there's a bunch of shitty films, a couple of mild funny comedies. And even though this wasn't a success at the time, initially in Hong Kong, it got far more um, appreciation abroad. It did eventually become a fairly popular film there. But, you know, Wu, Wu is, is definitely coming out of a a slightly different place than maybe his contemporary so you mentioned um it's yeah it's stylish it's glossy it's, it's 90s um if he was an american at the time he definitely would have been making episodes of miami vice and music videos you know um I, I feel there is a little more going on. Now you talked about the rather uh, ramshackle nature of Hong Kong film productions. You now let's just get the camera. Let's just make something up today. I do feel there's a lot more going on there, and he's using things like editing in a really interesting way. Um, so I can see I can see how he has influenced you, but I can't think of anybody else. Bring it back to your question. I can't think of anybody else that that would would have been quite as a direct influence on Western filmmakers.
1: Yeah. Um I mean, the, certainly when you talk about, about Wu's contemporaries, I think Ringo Lam is the only one who comes sort of close, but even then they they have uh, some sort of stark differences there. Um Certainly with Ringo Lam, he likes to play at the melodrama a lot more than John Wu does, Um and John Wu's gunplay is certainly a lot more extensive <laughs> and drawn out than uh, the Ringo Lam's uh, are, but I Mean you can see obviously see where when we look at it, so Tarantino, uh another person who was heavily influenced by the work of Ringo Lamb. I mean we can let bygones be bygones about how much Reservoir Dogs is inspired by City on Fire. Uh, but certainly you can see us in so many sort of like key shots and the way he chooses to shoot that film. It is very much like a Ringo Lamb movie. Just obviously on a budget. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean obviously back to this film, I mean this is the plot for this one is, he's, uh, he's playing a assassin called Ah Jong, who works by his own honour code. And basically, he during a hit, he accidentally blinds a lounge singer called Jenny, played by Sao Yi, And he decides that he's going to get out of the game and he's going to do one last big hit so he can pay for her eye surgery. Now, at the same time, we've got this obsessed like cop, Played by Danny Danny Lee, I believe. Yep. I think so. Who um, here plays Detective Lee Ying, and he is uh, basically becomes obsessed with uh, trying to track down this mysterious hitman. And at the same time, he every time these two have an encounter, that he realizes that he's not just some ruthless killer. He's actually got this this honor code there, and the two embark on this sort of game of uh, cat and mouse ultimately finding themselves uh, going up against this, against a triad boss um, called um, Hei Won Khoi, played by, by Xing Fu Wun, um, who basically has no honour at all and tries to basically kill Ah what after he does this this big hit they task him with. Um and this all ultimately builds up to the two teaming up to take on the uh, big trial boss in typical wood fashion, which means a lot of people running around in slow-mo, firing endless shots without never having to reload, unless it looks stylish and wearing white suits. I have to say that if you're going into a gunfight, then a white suit I wouldn't think would be like the the outfit of choice, really.
0: Well, I was, I, you know, I had exactly, when I was sitting there picking it apart, as exactly I think I mean yeah I don't, I don't want delve to do but yeah I don't want to pick it too much right now but absolutely yeah, they're, they're wearing these white suits and the blood showing and the sweat showing and um, you're making quite a target in the middle of the night in a in a, in a a well-lit girl <laughs> yeah so I mean
1: let's just, first of all, let's just look at this uh, relationship between our detective um, Li Ying And uh, Ah Arjun, how did you find this sort of like cat mouse pairing that we get between these two? Because obviously, this would be a lot shorter film if Detective Ying wasn't as driven as he is. It's the same as if the sheriff in First Blood had like given up in the first fifteen minutes; it would have been a lot shorter movie um, than than just being so ruthlessly determined to track down uh, Ah Arjun. And in doing so, he seems to cause more collateral damage than I think. Would perhaps happened otherwise. I mean, we have during this sort of big hit that uh, Ao Jong's going on, it suddenly turns into this huge gunfight that another young girl gets caught in the crossfire there. And um, it seems to be a running theme with young girls being maimed whenever Cherry and Fat's engaged in a gunfight. There seems to be one in every film he does. I, think, of, I think it's uh, Full Contact. There's a girl who gets set on fire during a, a gunfight scene that he he gets into. And it seems to be a running theme with whenever he teams it with, like, Ringo Lamb or uh, John Woo, that some young girl's going to get injured in some way, so...
0: Yeah, I mean, the Daniel character is really kind of interesting because um, he's, like, one of the worst policemen in the world, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's set up as this angry young... Well, not that young, but this sort of, sort of angry person who you really wouldn't trust with a gun. There's there's, there's, a, there's a lot of cool... Things. Um, I think it's near the beginning of the film where he jumps on the tram and uh, takes out a, a criminal, but basically heart, gives gives the hostage to being able to heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> and you just think, how's this guy still going? And then they jump on, then they then they jump on a boat and they they chase the highly disguised Chow Young little grey moustache that he's put on to stop people recognising him and uh, like you say the collateral damage is not just that poor little girl but the, the, the bodies of all sorts are in this guy's world but how is he still a policeman and I guess I guess we're kind of saying that's why they're a bit the same because they both um, they both don't really care about well Chuck probably does care about, about the people that he's taking out but they don't really care that lots of people die around them
1: yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's so insane the fact that they have no regard for anything else that's going around, on around them. So they're engaging like high speed car chases and boat chases and things are like exploding and thousands of bullets are flying anywhere. This isn't like any time someone gets into a into a shootout. It's not just a shootout, uh simple affair. It's just like there's hundreds of rounds are being fired in any particular gunfight you you want to see in this. And while well, perhaps it doesn't come close to, like, the 30-minute shootout we get at the end of Hard Boiled. Um, it's still really pretty to look at. These are some really exciting sort of action scenes that we have here, even though you have to wonder where all these villains are coming from. <laughs> how many, like, how many like uh, sort of lackeys does uh, this trial boss have?
0: Well, especially because he's after um, the money, isn't he? Yes. Which I think in the version I saw, it's something like one and a half million, he calls it. But I assume one and a half million Hong Kong dollars, which is about 100,000 pounds. (laughs) Well, he must have a lot more money than that around to hire all these guys. And actually, why don't you just get one of his guys to do the initial hit anyway? The whole thing. I think that's the struggle I have with it. The whole Thing doesn't make any sense that uh, he he's hiring this really expensive hitman to do something he'd do himself I much more easily. Yeah, but
1: it's a difficult hit. That's why he needed the he needed this super hitman to to do it. So he has he has the guy taken out of the dragon boat race, and is it, I mean when you look at obviously how Ah doing it, and he's like timing it with the 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 drums of the, on the boats. So that his shot gets disguised, and I mean, his disguise is awful. I'll give you that. <laughs> that that glue-on mustache isn't uh, going to be fooling anyone. But
0: yeah, but the, that, that level of subtlety in 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 Killy replicated anywhere else in the rest of the film. For this, it's like, really about the sheer numbers, isn't it? After that. Hmm. Um, <laughs>
1: But yeah, I mean, certainly there's some undeniable chemistry between Zhao Yun Fat and Danny Lee in this film. I mean, Danny Lee is so intense for no apparent reason. Every scene he's in, he's just so intense. Um, and yet they seem to find this common ground between them to the point that they even have fun little cute nicknames for each other. Which, if you're watching the dub version, um, Ao Zhong is referred to uh, given the nickname Mickey Mouse, and uh, Detective Ying is called Dumbo. Um, there's also Prince. Uh, there's also Prince, where he's called Butthead and Dumbnuts
0: Yeah, it's, it's Shrimp and Nuts. No, I should sure so I mean, I guess there is a side to this film which I think many have interpreted as, and probably quite a lot, on Wu film. But it's pretty darn heroic, isn't it? The relationship <laughs> between the two of them. I mean, Danny Lee when he first after their sort of first initial brush up again talking to his mate and it's all oh his eyes you can see the compassion behind them oh he's not like other men and you think what and then uh, <laughs> later on they say something to each other which is like um oh and he's, ta- he's talking to yeah i wish i knew him he sounds so special <laughs> it's like You know, it's subtle as spam, and whether or not you agree with this, John Woo denying it is um, is just utter utter stupidity. Because there is a, you know, it's it's more than just two guys in the same line of work on opposite sides of the coin. These guys really like each other, (laughs) uh, which is which is fine, but let's not deny it.
1: Well, I mean, well, as you said, I mean, he, he's, he's he's often responded to this, I man. He said, people will bring their own preconceptions to, uh, to a movie. If they see something in the killer that they consider to be homoerotic, then that is their privilege. It is certainly not intentional. Um, but, yeah. They, Bullshit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think he's having a hard time reconciling I, against his own Christianity, but never mind.
1: I think if we're going to question anything in this film, though, I want to question, what what was he thinking when he wrote the scene where they're facing off in um, Jenny's apartment, and they're playing off the fact that Jenny's blind so she can't see, and they've both got guns pointed at each other. And the whole scene seems to be shot like, oh, let's make fun of the fact that she can't see. Um, Including the really bizarre line where where um, Zhong's like, oh, I'm going to the toilet. (laughs) And uh, Ying's like, I'm coming too. And I'm thinking, well, isn't there public <laughs> restroom he's got there?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a film full of homoerotic, unresolved sexual tension. That's fine. But, I, you know, it it's definitely there. I might, I have another question. That's a lot of the action takes place in a church. Yes. Uh, but, the only person who seems to frequent this church is uh, Young, um, yet I've never seen so many lit candles. It, it's it's the most well-lit, underused church. I don't know who's lighting all these candles. And furthermore, in the second half of the film, it appears it's a building site because it's absolutely laden with loads of really convenient scaffolding for people to climb up and fall over and smash into. It's a really weird location. <laughs> Sort of build upon. You can see that they've kind of made this film in um in order, and they just, they're going to make the most of this uh this location. But I don't I don't understand I don't understand the relevance and and the resonance of why it's in this church.
1: I think it's really just uh you've got to give him as young like this way this way this place of peace for himself and. Because it's, I mean, it's a church, it's hollow ground, which means technically if we fund Samuels to the Highlander, you can't fight on on holy ground, which obviously goes completely out of the window by the end of this film because the whole shootout's in the church. And we have a, a handily placed monk who has been no word to be seen in this whole film yet seems to be quite willing to join these two people that he's never met and assist them in getting Jenny out. I have no idea what, where this monk has come from, but he randomly turns up at the end. And, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think this is really just a, a, another throwback to Scorsese. I mean, Scorsese loves to include his Catholic
0: imagery in his films. He he does. I mean, there is a bit in it sort of where um, he's having the bullets taken out of his back in there. And um, you're thinking in, in front of a cross. I mean, it's just dripping with imagery and that is one thing that woo does like is a bit of imagery and that's where you know i was joking before about the doves and and things like that and and he he does have a reason for it um you know it just overdoes everything everything's to excess <laughs> thinks yeah. to every it's not it's not even excess isn't the right word but that was it. it it's, it's a spam isn't it and I think that's the problem I have with his movies, or certainly the ones I've seen, is that they lack any kind of subtlety and depth. They just whap you in the face with a big fish. And <laughs> you take it you take it or leave it. I think the thing with Woo's movies though is the fact that yes,
1: we're obviously seeing this excess of violence and gunplay and um and you compare it to like a Western director, say like Michael Bay and the difference is that there's such levels of creativity and it's not about showing the same shot over and over again. He's like constantly finding new ways to have these characters interact with the environment, to use the weaponry, to um dispose of their opponents. And there's this constant inventiveness. Perhaps it's not on the same level as like you know, like a Jackie Chan where he's again utilizing the environment to dispatch his foes. But certainly when we look at uh, the chair sequence or we look at the um, when they try to attack him in Jenny's apartment, and you can see that he's like uh, hearing where they are, and when he's like slides back on the chair and shoots the guy in the door, and it's, like a very nice fluidity to a fluidity, the word out there eventually um, to the way he moves. Like as I said, this is like heroic. The way the heroic gunplay movies are, are designed, really, it's all about he doesn't reload because it's stopping the action. And the only time the, as I said, he reloads is if it's done, be done in a stylish manner, or it's to like build sort of tension and that. So when we see him like move around the church, or when we see him doing the whole chase sequence, such as like in the parking garage where he's like driving around in in the uh, the car and he's like shooting at the the driver and stuff. It's always like every time someone's dispatched of, it's got to be done in like the most stylish way possible. It's not just like disposable grunts and stuff like. And it also really brings into a um, question like the health and safety standards of Hong Kong filmmaking, which there's a scene, well, there's two scenes in the finale. There's a guy who falls off scaffolded onto what clearly looks like the ground and someone falls off the top of a church again onto the ground. There's no, seems to be any way to make this look any softer landing for these actors. And yet this seems to be a pretty standard fare in Hong Kong cinema.
0: Yeah, <laughs> the, the health and safety standards are very low, aren't they? I mean, the, the obviously we know all about the legends of, um, and we see it in the you know, scenes of Jackie Chan films, the things he goes through. But I'm pretty certain less able stunt actors are really bad at in in pretty much every Hong Kong film of this sort of late eighties early nineties era, because um, we see it there on the screen. <laughs> Not many second takes, I'm suspecting. <laughs> I
1: think uh, was it um, uh, Margaret Cho, um, who I only really recently found out was actually in Face Off. Um, she she talked about working in uh, working on a John Woo movie, and she was saying that when he was directing Face Off, he was frustrated with the fact that none of the actors weren't to work for like twenty four hours straight, and the fact that you had twelve of these health and safety checks every five minutes. So I have to wonder, like, do you reckon that the fact that in Hong Kong he can make a film with as I said, it's nothing to ask actors for like work work like lengthy hours or to, in this case, throw themselves off scaffolding or buildings with like little padding to land on. Um, do you think this was sort of like the appeal for returning to Hong Kong rather than trying to sort of work it out in the uh, Hollywood system?
0: Um, I, I suspect like like a lot of those guys who came over, I think he, he he did have way more success than anybody else, didn't he? Um you know, you you listed a couple of films and whether you think they're good or bad, you know, they, they, they were financially successful movies and, and fairly memorable on the whole. I think going back to Hong Kong and back to China, other than Redcliffe, I don't think anything he, he's back has been worth a jot. In fact, I think America's broken in the but the, the Hong Kong film industry as a whole has lost, you know, its bed because there's only four and that kind of dynamism, that kind of let's just let's just put the band together and let's play a gig now kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> just doesn't exist anymore. And I think I, you know, I, I think they left at a good time. It's a shame we was the only one to succeed, and it's a shame that he walked away from it as well. Um, it, you know, I, 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 I've been tagging off the film. I don't get it, but clearly the guy's got talent. Certainly in terms of visual, certainly in terms of putting things together and that's all down to that really hard work ethic. Um however much I wouldn't like to work for him.
1: <laughs> it's um Yeah, it's I mean I I can't help but wonder, is he another of these directors then that has lost their mojo? Because I mean and as I said, there's only you I think it's been uh, said, I mean, Tony certainly mentioned on his icon last episode that the fact that with writers, we're saying with writers and certainly with directors, we see it where they hit the point where they're at their peak and then they just lose it and they ne- very rarely get it back. Um, directors, it's like Francis Ford Coppola. When we look at uh, his sort of output and like um, to say like Joe Dante, um, uh, John Carpenter certainly is. You seem to have these directors that produce like wonderful films like in the 80s and then they sort of sort. Of, Peter Off, I mean Wes Craven would be another one of these, and they just sort of hit that peak when they just never seem to get it back. They just seem to produce uh, sort of films which don't compare to the original films. And I kinda of wonder at the same time, are we is it because we put these earlier films in such high regard that it's impossible for these later films to ever live up to the legacy of these uh these early films?
0: I think it's true of guys who have a kind of independent success up front, which just that cool when they said that his independent phase, yeah, when he could obviously scrounging around off his reactors for God's sake for this And of that necessity, you know, breeds invasion, like the whole nose, you know. Um, then go, to, but. The, talked about John Carpenter and, and some other name, um, I mean we include Cronenberg as well you know, that there's a point that they reach in the amount of money that they get to spend on a film and suddenly that, that level of of creativity out of necessity disappears, they lose it they lose no joke you're, that's, you're absolutely the the right phrase to use Um, no, did go back. And he did go back and make a couple of fantastic films in Redcliffe very unlike anything else he's done. I was wondering how much he had to do with them. But he, he clearly. But still there, I mean, the reign of assassins was alright. sort of a pretty sturgeon affair. The crossing I've never seen, but spoken to says both of them are universally naff when I talk about Manhunt, which is his last one. But it's. You know, also, the other Hong Kong things, I guess they were making two or three films here, yeah, weren't they? Certainly uh, so you'd be involved in that. I mean, I mean, I joked earlier about that being in other films, but sort of the people they're with, you get them for two days, three days, you have to be creative about it. And if you've got the basic skill to off off, then, then it works. Maybe maybe when you get, like a footballer, you know, you have some strikers who, the more time to think about it, the worse they get. <laughs> and it's yeah. when they work on instinct that they're the best. I wonder if it's something like that. Maybe they they, they keep too much of the craft and they try too hard and they've lost that they've lost the inspiration side of things, and they're purely working on perspiration. And that's the miss it. Mixed metaphors there.
1: It's hard to say. So I mean, are you saying that you think John Woo should just stick to being a
0: producer? I think he should. find... I, I think Benfus is fine. That's all right. He, you know, he's made his money and he's, he's got a body of work there. But maybe he needs to go and find his mojo again. And maybe there's he's doing by setting it quite slow and back to make a, a smaller with, amongst friends. I don't know, but maybe.
1: Yeah, so I mean, obviously, I've, I've still got to see Manhunt. It is on Netflix now. Um, so I've yet to see where I've yet to see uh, a lot of his later, later stuff because I mean, I came up watching the early films like these Hong Kong yeah, So, uh, films like, like this and Bullet in the Head and uh, Hero Shed No Tears. So, for myself i mean i've always got these two sort of areas of john Mu that i sort of gravitate towards i mean and there's a clear divide between his hong kong stuff and his hollywood stuff um i really love his early hong- hollywood stuff i think up to face off it's all really good uh paycheck i think's a- okay uh, but it got rather than fairly bashed but uh certainly with the the hong kong stuff there uh, there is so much good uh, stuff especially if you like uh, the horror gunplay movies he really proved himself to be a master when you, like, look at the early, uh, films, and certainly anything that he does with you in fact, is definitely worth, uh, worth worth your time, so, um, I'm trying to think of anything else, uh, in this, this, uh, film to, to, to talk about, I mean, is there anything else
0: that you sort of stood out
1: uh,
0: to I've got a couple of things, so okay. one good, one bad, um, good, I did like the, um, the storyline Chu Kong's storyline uh, so Feng Shisei his sort of manager and friend who yeah. basically um, betrays him and, and and he has a kind of relationship with the triad guy and he redeems himself eventually doesn't he um, I kind there, there was, there was sort of like that uh, there was a bit of depth there to the storyline Um guess it's not particularly original but I liked it that it was there and that it sort of gave some meaning and connection to things. I thought Sally Ye was utterly wasted. <laughs> I mean, she she's just a, you know, she's just a victim magnet, isn't she? In the whole film. I mean, the, it's not a film to go looking for strong female roles. I think Sally Ye herself isn't too fond of of the part she played in that film. Oh, I, mean, she, you
1: know. I mean, how well does she sell that ending? Where <laughs> when okay, spoiler alert. Uh, where Cheung Fat Scout is ironically blinded during in a gunfight, and they're crawling towards each other and just miss each other. I mean,
0: <sighs> yeah. So Salieri is a really interesting actress <laughs> because she actually was brought up in Canada. Um, she's of Taiwanese descent. She went to Taiwan and then she eventually made her way to Hong Kong to work in the film industry, and she's a singer as well can't read a word of Chinese (laughs) she can speak it but she can't read it and she has to have everything done for her phonetically um so just just the fact that she's got a career I think she can speak Cantonese but you know she can't read it so this is this ability of this woman to have a career in music and acting when she can't actually read what she's singing and and (laughs) acting and talking is amazing. I mean, yeah, I was also going to bring up that ridiculous ending where the guy's been shooting at him for hours, it feels like, (laughs) and he's barely hit a thing, and he managed to get both his eyes with two shots. (laughs) I get the irony. I get the point. And it kind of ends in just a real downer, doesn't it? I mean, there's no... (laughs) <laughs> it just ends which is fairly normal for this era of Hong Kong film but um, you, you know he's, he's, he's done something he's tried to make amends for it although in a bit of a creepy sort of stalkery way and then that's taken away from him the money's gone his eyes are gone so he can't replace her corneas I'm never too sure is she blind or is she going blind that's the other thing as well Jeez. because it's a bit inconsistent isn't it
1: <laughs> Yeah, but it is, especially if you're watching the the Derby gets a little more muddy even, still. So, um, but no, she's basically she's, her eyes are, are damaged, so she's going blind, and she has to have this operation before she permanently goes blind, this is why there's this big rush to get her over to the doctor in Singapore So she's uh, temporarily blind she's, but she's she'll sem- go She will go she permanently will, blind, because this is why she needs a, a repair, an operation um, she's waiting for a retina transplant, and um I mean, the first time I watched this film, I thought Sharon Fast's character is going to go out in a blaze of glory, and his eyes would go to her. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that works medically or not, or, but this is this is what I thought. and That would be, you know, he find, he's uh, able to uh, finally repair, repair a site, because you've got this whole theme of honour and loyalty, and you said, right, I mean, we've got this honour between the the detective and uh, hitman, and we've got this uh, whole other relationship between um, between his manager, as you said, and and uh, and his character. And I have to say that he's such a good friend. He takes one hell of a beating for Chayanne Fat's character.
0: He does, doesn't he? <laughs>
1: um, and I mean, but then again, everyone seems particularly tough in this film when we look at our big villain. How many times does that guy get shot and blown up and he still keeps going? It's like
0: it it, it is like the Terminator versus the Terminator with lots of other Terminators around, isn't it? I mean, they (laughs) are amazing.
1: I mean, yeah, it makes sense to the beginning because he's got his bulletproof vest on.
0: uh,
1: But even still, he's still getting getting he's like in the film, he gets his arm shot and um he's like shot the chest and he's he's got all these previous injuries going into this gunfight and yet he's still able to take a stupid amount of uh of shots of shots to him and he's still moving around quite spryly and it has to be said
0: yeah it's i mean i think the way to approach this film is uh as as a sort of cartoon isn't it it's um it's Looney Tunes stuff with bullets. Um, but you know, I've got to say it's not my cup of tea, but it's incredibly stylish and there's plenty to enjoy there as long as you check your, it. it's popcorn, isn't it? It's popcorn yeah. entertainment. Um, I, you know, I've been joking around about various things, but if you don't take it too seriously and you look at the, the style of it and the charm of Chow Yun Fat there's a hell of a lot to enjoy. So um, I'll remain on the fence, but it wasn't a horrible experience. Cool. Uh, for viewing then, what would you like to pair
1: The Killer with? You go first. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want to
0: double choice.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a there's a couple of uh, things, films that I would obviously go with. I mean, as I said, we said already, I mean, this forms the middle part of my introduction trilogy to John Woo, which will obviously be about tomorrow then the killer, and then hardballed in that order. <sighs> Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> um, going a little off uh, field, I mean, and one that I frequently have people rave and rave about, and they, they say they pair it with the uh, killer, and that would be Bullet in the Head from 1990. Um, this book basically follows three Hong Kong uh, gangsters, uh, hit by uh, Tony Lung, Jackie Chung, and Waze Lee who tried it um, basically go to Vietnam and then did a prison camp um, along with the U.S. soldiers. It's one of those films that I remember at the time, because I mean, this was released in 1990. It was a lot of people really raved about this and were very excited for it getting a Western release. Um, but since then, it seems to have really sort of fallen by the wayside and become sort of like one of the lesser known films in, in uh, was catalog. And it's kind of a shame really because it, much like this and Hero Shed No Tears, it is a, is a really uh, decent entry and it captures many of his fun elements that he is obviously well known for for his Hong Kong period. So, um, yeah, I think uh, if you want to watch something similar that's not too obvious, then uh, Bullet in the Head would be my recommendation.
0: OK, yeah. I was really struggling with this because there aren't you know, these aren't films which particularly appeal to me. But um, you mentioned Johnny Toe earlier being influenced mm. by him um and i'm going to go for the 2000 i think 2000 2001 uh, full-time killer by johnny toe oh, starring nice. um starring andy Lau and takashi soramachi and other faces that will i recognize that simon Lam, yam and um, kelly lynn and Lamb so it Basically, lots of um, Johnny Toes' usual gang, really. So yeah, um, it's it's a hitman film, and there's another, and there's another hitman on the scene, and uh, guns are fired, and, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, I just thought it was quite a nice, um, a slight, slightly different star, style-wise, but uh, somewhat similar.
1: Fantastic. Um, so you obviously have our selections uh, for next next time soon what would you like to pick
0: okay i am going to go on a 180 here (laughs) Uh, so i keep mentioning we barely ever talk about korean movies and also we you know you, you brought this in talking about mainstream films i want to go really mainstream and i want to really go for a a korean weepy romantic film to talk about um, Quack Jae-yong's follow-up to My Sashi Girl, which is a film called The Classic, which is a, uh, a love story about a mother and a daughter in two different eras, both played by Son Ye jin and it has all the hallmarks of a classic Korean weepy, and I want to put you through it.
1: You're so kind.
0: I'm nice <laughs> I'm nice like that, but if we, I couldn't 180. I couldn't 180 more if I tried.
1: Well, that's fine. So uh, yeah, we'll be looking at the classic next time. Um, in the meantime, pl- as I said, please do a uh, like, hit subscribe, those, uh, click those buttons, leave us a review. Uh, we are obviously available on iTunes, Podomatic, and. Basically, anywhere where good podcasts can be found, you can also listen to our complete archive through thatmomentin.com. Also, if you search for thatmomentin on Spotify, you can also get our complete archive on there as well. If you uh, check out our blog, which is AsianCinemaFilmClub.WordPress.com, um, the archive is on there as well. And you can also find exciting uh, things such as our new feature, which is our mixtape uh, segment, which we have been put started on the blog. Um, we started this, obviously, last month for May, uh, featuring selections from Hiroke, Flip, Bandmade, Barbarets, as well as She, Won, Fu, and the Yoshida Brothers, um, along with many more on there. It's a little 12-track selection of bands and artists that are currently holding our interest at the moment. And uh, we're trying to make it a regular regular feature on the blog there, just to you know expand our own musical taste there and uh, share some the wealth of asian music that is out there that is uh, obviously well worth discovering and obviously special thanks to yam uh, magazine and kim uh from game Warp triangle dreams for helping uh with their by submitting their selections and you can of course uh, let us know what uh, you think should be featured on there let us know either on twitter or facebook or as i said you can email us which is uh ac club at yahoo.co.uk um or as i said just leave a message on the uh in the comment section below uh we appreciate any sort of input that uh you want to uh, give us so uh, really you've got a film you want to see us cover on the show you want to recommend us a piece of music we're welcome to all uh your feedback we love to hear it and uh till next time i mean thank you of course to my uh co-steven
0: thank you very much for having me
1: this is elwood jones uh saying good night 昨日のことは忘れて昨日のあのいい